Well, good morning, Redemption. So glad you're here today. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving and happy Advent to you. Uh, we're going to worship the Lord this morning through a couple of Christmas, Christmas carols. And so let's sing together and glorify the Lord this morning. Oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Sing that chorus again. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen. The world was dark. The people were living in a land of darkness. The people were walking in darkness. And then light. Light shined into the world. The people who lived in darkness would see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. A child will be born to us. A son given to us. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is hope. 
Jesus, the light of the world, shining in the darkness, piercing the darkness. Jesus, the one who came to save us. This is hope. Only our only hope. It's Advent. He is coming. This is the season in which we celebrate the coming of Jesus to earth. The first candle called the hope candle because we remember the hope we have in Jesus. Jesus, our hope, our light, our life. He came once to shine the darkness and he is coming again to end the darkness. We wait for him with expectant hope. Let us prepare our hearts for him. Amen. Let's continue to worship. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, 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 Emmanuel shall come to Thou day spring come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to fly. Fill the 
rejoice, 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 Emmanuel shall come to thee, O God, we come to you today, a people in need of your saving. So God, would you be glorified in us, your church, through the path of salvation that you've made through Jesus Christ. God, would you be glorified through the worship and through the word, uh, through the uh, announcements and the interviews, uh, Lord, through the communion and the time that we have together. Would you be glorified through all of these things? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for being up here leading us. Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. How y'all doing? Good Thanksgiving? Um, I heard this morning somebody said, we don't like the traditional Thanksgiving fare, and so we had steak and lobster tail. Anybody else? That, yeah, there you go. So that's kind of the, where I wanted to be. But uh, anyway, it was good, though. I, my big thing on Thanksgiving is bread stuffing. I mean, if we have bread stuffing, stovetop, that's it. You know, just a big bowl of that, I'm happy. I have no idea how I got on that. Welcome. We are glad that you are here. Um, Redemption Arcadia is a church that is gospel-centered and outward-focused. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And we haven't done the reading yet because we're going to actually do something that we used to do every week before COVID. We're going to have an all-of-life interview, but it has a very specific purpose, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, those of you who have been around Redemption Church uh, for more than a year probably know that every year at Advent... Uh, during this time, it's not just that we change gears in the scripture that we're going to be covering, which we are uh, for the next several weeks, but uh, we also have what we call our, um, our yearly Advent offering, which is anything that's over and above your regular giving to the church, and we specifically, every year, we've done this now every year for 10 years, uh, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, um, we find... Uh, three ministries that we want to bless financially and with gifts and with time. Uh, some of those ministries get repeated. Others are new uh, each year. But what we do is we collect this money that's over and above our regular giving on our Internet uh, giving uh, device. We have, a, we have a category that pops up now every Advent season, so you can give specifically to that, um, to that account rather than just to the general budget. Um, and, and then we uh, split the, the financial offering three different ways. So during uh, Advent, we ask that you give your time, your gifts, and your treasure. So the time, uh, once again, we've been doing this for years now, and we just keep doing it. Uh, every year, uh, our, our Alhambra congregation, Redemption Alhambra, has something called Affordable Christmas. So you can sign up, and if you take, the, you, have, you should have two um, handouts on your chair today, and I'll talk about both eventually, but... Um, uh, on the Advent offering one, uh, you'll see that on Saturday, December 19th, they're going to have their affordable Christmas uh, event. You can sign up there. I think two different shifts that you can sign up for, and you can help out with that, um, uh, that event over at Redemption Alhambra. We always have a bunch of people that go over and help with that, which is great. Uh, and then they also need gifts for that as well. They need to be able to have stuff that they can offer for affordable Christmas. So you can also 
help by giving gifts, and you would bring those here. We would collect them and take them over to Alhambra for them to figure to sort out and be able to uh, merchandise there. And on the back of this um, card is just a suggestion list of those gifts that you can get for Alhambra's affordable Christmas. If you want to um, participate that way, you can do that. And then what I started talking about is the treasure. Our money for Advent will be split this year between three organizations as it always is. The first organization is Redemption Foster Care and Adoption. The way we've set this up, the way Redemption Church has set this up, is that every other year we will give part of our offering to Redemption Foster Care and Adoption, and this is a year for Redemption Foster Care and Adoption. So beyond that, there are two other ministries that we seek to bless. One is also, another one is a repeat ministry. Many of you are familiar with our partnership with Alongside Ministries. It is a prison transition ministry. Uh, people we have several people in our congregation who volunteer to be mentors in the prison. This is pre-COVID and hopefully eventually post-COVID, but they go into prison. Uh, uh, they have a, a particular person that they're mentoring who's known as a short timer. He's going to be getting out within the next 12 months. And they go in once a week into the prison to start preparing this person for re-entry re into culture. And then once they qualify for the alongside ministry program, when they come out, they are also picked up at the prison and taken to one of the um, communities or homes that alongside ministry has. And they get six months of free rent and counseling and Bible studies and... Um, job help and all that kind of stuff to be able to help get them going uh, during their re-entry into society. Uh, in Arizona, our prisoners, our ex-cons, have a recidivism or a re-offending re rate of about 66%. Anybody who has been through Alongside Ministries, which has been around now for about 24 years, anybody who has been through Alongside Ministries, the recidivism rate or the reoffense rate at Alongside Ministries is less than 9%. So it's a very effective program. Uh, it's a faith-based program. The state of Arizona really appreciates it, as they should. And so we're going to be giving a part of the um, offering to them. And then the last one is something uh, that, that is new to us, but not necessarily new uh, to Redemption Church. And I'm going to bring up the founder and the executive director in just a minute. But I want to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it's called AZ Reach. And uh, the, the target, if you want to use that type of terminology for AZ Reach, is really um, high school students within... Uh, inner city high schools, and I want to read to you some of their, um, some of the, 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 I guess you would call it curriculum that they have to help you help you get introduced to AZ Reach, and then we're going to have Juan come up, and I'm going to ask him a few questions to get to know about it a little bit more. The mission of AZ Reach is to transform hearts and develop healthy leaders for the flourishment of families, homes, and communities in our city. And the vision is that we will develop healthy fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, who are committed to faithfulness, unconditional love, sacrificial service, and the flourishment of their neighborhood. We will accomplish this by partnering with schools within the inner city, where we will teach our curriculum and develop in-depth relationships with the students in our program. And uh, just to give you a little bit of uh, unpacking and explanation, you see the logo up there. I appreciate this. Our logo, the hand with AZ reach imprinted in the middle, is derived from Isaiah 49.16, where God says, See, I have written your name on the palm of my hands. And our mission statement, which is to transform hearts and develop healthy leaders for, for the flourishment of families, homes, and communities in our city, to transform hearts is inspired from the belief that true heart transformation can only take place through salvation, 
and develop healthy leaders for the flourishment of families, homes, and communities is inspired by Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see heaven on earth, flourishment, meaning whole and healthy families are established and rooted in Christ and community. So having said that, would you please welcome up AZ Reach's uh, founder and executive director, Juan Chavez. Good to see you. All right. So um, right out of the gate, let me ask you this. Where, what do you normally do on Sunday morning? Where are you normally on Sunday mornings? Check, check. There we go. Uh, usually on Sunday mornings, I am at Redemption Peoria. I'm a pastor there, and I help uh, oversee our community engagement and our redemption communities. So how long have you been a part of Redemption Church? I've been there for three and a half years. So that's awesome. You've been around a while. Yeah. And we've been able to develop that relationship. So <laughs> yeah. tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what high school you went to. Yeah, so I grew up in South Phoenix, 39th Avenue and Southern, across the street from Cesar Chavez High School. I went to that high school and graduated from there in 2007 and then began working there a few years after. You went back and started working at the high school. I went back. So I got saved at 19. Uh, you know, God opened my eyes to his goodness, and I said, God, I wish I knew you in high school. And then he put me back at that high school a few years later as a teacher. And so you were teaching there. What were you teaching? I was teaching a class called Peer Leadership. It's an elective class. I taught there for six years for uh, freshmen through senior students. So you not only went to high school there, but you then went to college and then went back to that school. So you know the school. You know the students. Yeah, I know the school, and some of the teachers would see me on campus and do a double take, like, what are you doing here? Like, you would never, they would never thought I'd be back on that campus, you know, but, That's but God awesome. had other plans. So what inspired you, answer it is to this, but what inspired you to start this ministry, and how long have you been doing this ministry? Yeah, so uh, one year when I was teaching there, uh, one of my students got into a huge argument with his girlfriend, um, you know, during lunch hour. And when I confronted him, I mean, it was really bad. When I confronted him on it uh, and began talking about manhood and how men treat women and how we love them and care for them and respect them, uh, he looked me dead in my eye and said, Mr. Chavez, I don't know what it means to be a man. My father was never involved in my life. Uh, the, the next day, I asked my class of 30-plus students how many of them did not live at home with their dad, and 70% of my class raised their hand. Uh, so as my wife and I began praying, uh, we decided that I'd start a group of, uh, called Man Up, and I met with nine boys, uh, and, and all nine of them didn't have a relationship with their dad. I didn't know that until we started the group, uh, but I began walking them through what it means to be a man, biblical manhood, how Jesus lived, how we can strive after that, and challenging them to be committed to husbands and fathers in their communities uh, so we can stop these broken homes in the inner city and start to create whole families the way God designed it to be. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here. You saw a need, and you prayed about it, and you didn't pray that somebody else would fill that need, but you became the answer to your prayer request. You and your wife went and did this. That's awesome. So not looking for somebody else, but uh, getting equipped by God to go and do this. This was seven or eight years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. It was about, it was about eight years ago, and we've been doing it ever since. And we actually took what we were doing off campus and developed a curriculum that uh, we, we can now, which we're doing now through AZ Reach, teaching it on campus at our high schools. And that's when you went and pursued your 501c3 certification and all of yeah, that. Yeah, became to become, an official yeah. nonprofit, nonprofit 501c3, yeah. yeah. That's really good. Um, so I should ask you this. 
wife and family. So tell us a little yeah, bit yeah. about so, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I've been married to my wife, Christina, for eight years. And uh, we have three kids together, five, three, and one. Uh, so we got our hands full, but it's a joy, you know. So JL is our five-year-old daughter, Violet is three, and our son Jacob is one. So when Jacob was born, you went from playing man-to-man defense to zone, to right? zone defense, yeah. okay. exactly. Right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Good. So those of you who have two children, just think about that for a yeah. minute, all right? Um, so how many schools are you in currently with AZ Reach? And talk a little bit about how... You know, the ministry has had to change and adapt and pivot because of COVID. For sure. So uh, currently, our nonprofit is in two high schools, Chavez High School and Bostrom. And we're looking to start at Betty Fairfax High School, Cornerstone High School, and College and Power Prep. Uh, and we've had a pivot during COVID because the two high schools we're in are, are closed in person. They're all doing uh, online school. So Right away, one of the ways we served our students was by uh, providing laptops for them. So we gave out 40 laptops for our students to be able to, to you know, uh, work from home, from, to do school from home. And outside of that, we've just been meeting needs by providing uh, grocery gift cards to, to families who need it. A lot of them, a lot of their parents have lost work and are in need of that. Uh, you know, last week we visited Ernesto. His dad is currently in, in ICU right now. His name's Henry, if you can pray for him. Uh, but he's not doing well, so we went down, my wife and I, to pray with Ernesto and his grandparents and provide a meal and, and sit with them for a while and just do life with them as they're, they're struggling through some of this stuff. And those laptops also helped you to stay in touch through Zoom or Google oh, yeah. or whatever yeah, that yeah, might be for sure. as, as well. That's, that's really good. And um, uh, one of the things that we've talked a little bit about is how high schools are now coming to you and seeking you out and wanting. There's like a there's a greater demand than, than even the supply right now. So talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, we have uh, a number of high schools who have reached out. And to a couple of them, we've had to say no because uh, we didn't have uh, the, the manpower to be able to teach these. If we're going to go onto a high school campus, we want to make sure we're ready. You know, we, our, our leaders are trained. And there are leaders in close proximity to those high schools who live in the area, area who understand uh, the context of that high school and can serve them well. So you do all of this, and you keep everything running smoothly at Redemption Peoria, right? Is right. That... <laughs> yeah, along with a, a good, good, solid staff uh, staff team there, we, we're doing our best. Yeah. That's, that's really good. So um, what are your greatest needs, and how can people get more information from you? And I think part of that might have something to do with the fact that you've set up a table in our lobby for after the service. Yeah, so uh, my friend Carlos and I have a table back there. We'd love to answer any questions you have. You can pick up a, a, a sticker, an AZ Reach sticker that's yours to take. Uh, you can get our contact and reach out with any questions you have. Uh, we're asking for prayer right now. We ask for, if you would join us in praying for wisdom, uh, for where, where to go next, what high schools to go into next. We're praying for a community home. We've been praying for that for three years uh, where our students can have a safe place to go to after school and all of our programs our Bible studies, our hangouts are taking place in this home. Uh, and, and we're praying for financial support. You know, as the high schools are reaching out and we want to get into these schools to impact more students, we need the financial support to be able to do that. So we're asking God to provide people who would believe in what we're doing and come alongside and support us and even join us in, in reoccurring gifts so we can have some consistency going and, and know what's coming in to be able to continue to grow. So there's, there's really two things going on financially right now. There's just regular old uh, 
operating costs, I don't mean to minimize them by calling them regular old, but operating costs, but then there's this idea of a capital campaign to be able to get that community home, right? Exactly, so, yeah, exactly. Good. All right, well, let me pray for you, and uh, if you want to talk to Juan or Carlos more about this after the service, they're going to be set up in the lobby, okay? Uh, Lord God, we are, uh, as I said, just grateful for how you call and equip your people um, and, and how you give people a heart for what is needed. And Juan is a great example of that. His family, the people that work with him in his organization, his volunteers, uh, the staff, Redemption Peoria, who stands behind this as well. Uh, and God, I, I, I just pray that we could also be a blessing and a part of this. Uh, I pray that you would bless this ministry, bless this nonprofit endeavor. Uh, God, um, give them what they need to be able to function. Uh, first and foremost, as Juan prayed, uh, wisdom, that, uh, that he would be... Uh, given wisdom in the midst of all of this, and that you would be given all the glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here thank today, you. man. You thank bet. You. So now, uh, if you would, thanks. Yeah, it's all right. You can clap for him. You can stand for the reading of God's word as that comes. Good morning, church. Sorry, that was a little loud. Um, the reading today is going to be in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 23. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the te temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah, and turn them Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Zach. Percussionist and scripture reader. Appreciate that. Um, I have, uh, over the years, I've grown to appreciate that little biblical phrase, advanced in years. I just, 
I just think it sounds so much more dignified than you're old. So uh, when you think of myself and Steve Wheeler and Jim Moreland, think of us as advanced in years. That's very biblical. Anyway, um, one other item that I have to announce before we get started, and I lost, there it is. The other handout on your uh, chairs today are we, uh, uh, we at Redemption Arcadia, and we excluding me, I was not invited to do this other than to talk about it, but the musicians, the musicians, those gifted in music, uh, have put together an EP, a Christmas EP, four songs, and it's available um, on Spotify, I believe Apple Music, and also on YouTube as well. I've been listening to it on, on YouTube. Uh, anyway, uh, this will help you figure out all free, uh, figure out where to find that. And by the way, the last song we're going to do today during communion is actually one that was written here by these musicians and will be done. Um, I think Malia is going to be singing it. It's really, really a wonderful new song. I think you'll appreciate it. I got that right, didn't I? Okay, good. Wanted to make sure. Okay, so we are shifting away from John for a few weeks. <clears throat> we'll get back into John on uh, January 10th. Uh, and we're doing Advent, and then we'll have a kind of a one-off on January 3rd. And we're calling Advent this year, Come and See. Come and see the Messiah, the miracles, and the majesty of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've kind of broken the idea of come and see down into what we have now called a great theme. In the ancient Greek, the Koine Greek, which uh, the New Testament is written in, uh, the word for great is mega. And we see this sort of theme and pattern throughout everything that we're going to be doing in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 through verse 21 for this Advent series. And so there are going to be six messages that are about great. Today we're going to talk about Meganopian. So what we've done is we've conflated these ancient Greek words to come up with these titles. Meganopian, great before the Lord. That's today. Then there's Megaluno, which is great magnification. That's next week. On the 13th, it's Megalinen, which is great mercy. On the 20th, it's Megacharin, which is great joy. Christmas Eve is Meganomo which is Noma, which is great name, and then on the 27th is Megapistus, which is great faith. And for Advent, we see in this very long narrative, it starts in verse 1 of chapter 1 and goes through verse 21 of chapter 2, we see a careful structuring and interweaving of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, which should tell us something about the importance of the birth of John the Baptist. So, we're going to talk a lot about John the Baptist, at least today, and we've been talking a lot about him in this John series, too, because he has a pretty heavy presence in the early chapters of John uh, as well. And what we need to remember is the relationship between Jesus and John. It's very important. Jesus is the master. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior, the King. But also, his cousin, John the Baptist, is Jesus' herald. He's the one who goes before the one who is to come and announces or proclaims that he is coming. And it's really a reference to uh, Malachi chapter 4, which we're going to look at uh, later on uh, this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 21 also has, uh, I have found, a sort of a tense ethos of two parallels. Now, they're not really opposing parallels, uh, but they are different realities. And those parallels can be summed up in one word each. The first word is wonder. It's the Greek word thaumazo, uh, and we see it, for instance, in verse 21 and verse 63 of chapter 1 and in other places. The word means to marvel, 
to admire, to be amazed. It means astonishment, something that stops you in your tracks. It, it, it also means that there's a certain amount of concern, possibly, and certainly anticipation about what might be coming next. It means to be in wonder and speculate about its meaning, and it means to de delight to see what God is up to. It means all of those things, and you'll see that uh, in these chapters. And then the word fear is the other side of this parallel. The, the Greek word phobos, we see it in verse 12, we see it in verse 65 and others. And the word fear means panic, alarm, terror. And particularly here, it's, it, it can mean the panic, alarm, and terror that, that you suddenly realize that God is not with you. And that might be important that God is with you. It's the fear or the alarm uh, when you suddenly realize that God has found out your sin. Now understand, he's always known about your sin, but the problem is, is that we don't always realize that he knows about our sin. And that moment when we figure out, oh, he does know about it, there might be some panic and some alarm there. And then, and then three, knowing that God knows your sin, uh, the panic that you have, your alarm that you have, of your utter weakness standing before the complete holiness and majesty of God and realizing that without Jesus, you really don't have any hope to bridge that gap between your weakness, my weakness, and God's holiness. And that's what the gospel is about, is about covering uh, that gap, that that filling that chasm between sinner and holy God. And we can't do anything about that. That's all what Jesus does for us. That's why his birth is so important because it leads to the mission and purpose of his life, which is his death and resurrection. So we need to understand that. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to go through all 25 of the first 25 verses. Uh, Zach read uh, just a part of that, but we're going to also give us the introduction into the Gospel of Luke because it helps set the stage, and then uh, a little bit more of, of what happens after uh, this event in uh, the temple. So that first paragraph that starts the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So one of the interesting things... I. I know a little. I know just enough about ancient Greek that I learned in um, seminary to be kind of dangerous. That's about it. Uh, there are people who have studied this Greek and are so good at the Greek that they don't, they don't read the New Testament in English. They read it in the in the original Greek, and they even think about it in the original Greek. I mean, that's just incredible that they do that. Those scholars have said that by far Luke's prose, his rhetoric, the way he puts words together is the most beautiful in the New Testament. The guy was obviously educated. Um, he was a wonderful writer. And just reading his Greek is beautiful. It just reminds me of two years ago, I finally got around to reading East of Eden. It's a tiny little book. Take you about a half an hour to kind of go through. Um, anyway, John Steinbeck's classic book. And it, it's an interesting story, and I appreciated the story. But what I appreciated about Steinbeck even more 
was the guy knows how to put words together. I mean, there were times when I'm reading this and I'm like, I have no idea where this is going, but it's just beautiful to read. That's the sense you get when you read uh, Luke's gospel. And the other interesting thing about Luke's gospel is he starts his gospel in a way that's unique and different than just about anything else. He's telling us he's writing a letter. His gospel is actually a letter to this friend of his whom he calls most excellent Theophilus, so obviously somebody of very high uh, esteem. So think about what Luke is doing in this first paragraph. You maybe have heard the saying before, history is written by the winners, therefore history cannot be trusted. You may have heard that. Well, guess what? History cannot be trusted either if it's written by the losers. History, like every other discipline in life, is subject to our presuppositions, our perspectives, and our perceptions. And our perceptions and perspectives are always, no matter whether we're the winner or the loser, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we have power or we have no power, whether we have status or no status, no matter where we are in life, our perceptions and perspectives are always tainted by sin and selfishness because that's the corruption of sin in this world. The winners are not inherently sinful and the losers are not inherently unsinful. Both are filled with sin. So what Luke is doing here is what we would hope all historians would do. He's investigating and presenting, we hope, or at least trying to present, a non-biased account of what happened. Now, we know that there is no such thing as a presuppositionless, a presuppositionless interpretation of events, meaning, history, rhetoric, or philosophy. We know that. But Luke is at least acknowledging that this is a challenge and that he's doing his best to be fair about it especially since he's writing this as a personal letter to his friend Theophilus. And, and Luke also has one other factor, though, going for him that anything outside of Scripture is likely void of. The Holy Spirit is guiding him. The Holy Spirit is guiding him. We know from what Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture, and this is Scripture, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out literally means that Scripture is filled with the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit that fills the author. It is God dictating, in a sense, to the author what to write. And then profitable, Scripture is profitable. Literally, that word means it's beneficial, it's practical, and it will give great gain for those who submit themselves to it. Now... Besides the Holy Spirit, Luke had other things going for him that helped him practically to be able to write an accurate account of what happened. For instance, he was on the Acts trail much of the time with Paul. As you read the book of Acts, which Luke also authored, you see that there are times when he's describing what happened, but there are times he's also saying, and then this happened to us. So he was there a part of the time. He also likely had access to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, which were written several years before his Gospel was written and were already being circulated, so he probably read those. And then Luke also spent two years in Caesarea with Paul when Paul was in prison in Caesarea in those latter chapters of Acts, and very likely... Um, Paul had visitors during those two years coming from all over the region who had been eyewitnesses to the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so they were coming to see Paul, and so Luke had access to them as well and was able to interview them as well. One last comment here. Um, there, there's a lot of interesting detail in Luke's gospel that, that we see in some ways that in some cases is way deeper than in any of the other three gospels. 
There are things in Luke that you don't find in the other Gospels. Um, and, and you want to know why. And, and I've come up with one theory, and I think it's not bad. I surmise that it has to do with the fact that Luke was writing this as a personal letter, perhaps maybe even a private letter, letter to most excellent Theophilus. And there's a sense in which personal letter writing is deeper and more specific than something that is being written to a community or that, it, that you, the author knows is going to be publicly consumed. And those of you who are old enough to remember actual letter writing probably understand this. There's a, there's a really good movie. I think it's a really good movie from 1981. That's almost 40 years ago. That has Paul Newman and Sally Field in it. It's called Absence of Malice. And there's this scene where Paul Newman stops by Sally Field's apartment and she's writing a letter to her father. And Newman comes in and, and says to her, you know, it seems that nobody writes letters anymore. People just call. Why don't you just call him? Remember, this is 39 years ago, okay? All right? And she answers by saying this. She says, well, a letter is actually better because you always have something to keep. It's easier to call, but after you hang up, what do you have? Now, that just feels ironic to me. Now we don't even call. We just text an emoji. That's what our letter writing ability has been boiled down to today, is selecting the right emoji. I know I'm advanced in years. I'm stodgy. I get it. But it's true. It's true. This is a lost art form. OK, so we head back to the text, reading somebody who really understands the art form of rhetoric. So, Looking at the next three verses, five through seven, Luke writes, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter, daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So this guy, Herod, He's the Roman-appointed governor of that particular province where all of, and, and all the cities involved in that province where all of these um, events took place. And yes, if you've read your Bible, you know that there are actually several Herods in the Bible. They're all sort of kind of related in some way. It is really interesting to, first of all, to try to discern between all the different Herod, Herods. Uh, and then read and study about each of them and begin to realize that all of the Herods had very special issues. They all, something was goofy in their, they, they, were, they were a group, let me tell you, I'll tell you. They, they passed stuff along to each other that was not good. Um, anyway, there's also in this passage, there's a, this priest named Zechariah, and he becomes the focal point here. And he comes from a priestly family. That's uh, what is being communicated here. And also his wife came from the family of Aaron. So she also came from a priestly family. It's like all the priestly families would always get together, you know, for picnics and, and stuff. And they had a Facebook group, all the priestly families. And this is how you would find a mate. And you always ended up priestly kids with priestly kids. Maybe that's what happened. But Zechariah, we also know now, is a priest. And he's part of the division, the priestly division of Abijah. Now, here's what we know about priests in the first century in this province. There were 18,000 of them. And they were divided into 24 different divisions. And, and Zechariah's division was the division of Abijah. So do the math. That's about 750 priests in each division. Each division then was called on to serve in the temple two weeks out of the year. So every two weeks, there'd be this changing of the priesthood at the temple, and 750 new priests would descend on the temple uh, to serve there. 
And these three verses help explain two things to the reader about what's going to be happening and what's going on. First of all, it explains Zechariah's bona fides, or bona fides, however you pronounce it, his credibility as a priest. And these verses explain, here is what's really important and interesting to us, and I think applicable to us. It explains the fact that righteousness in this world is still under the curse of sin and suffering. Righteousness in this world is still under the curse of sin and suffering. We are told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless as to the law and the covenants under the law, which means that when they did sin, they did all of the right things to repent and atone for their sin under the law. So they were righteous and blameless before God, and yet they suffered immensely. This this little paragraph here is telling us how much they were suffering. In their culture... To be barren, to not be able to have children, was to be shunned by the community. You were shunned, and and you were also thought of as being under a curse from God. What did you do wrong? What did you do to anger God that he would do such a horrible, awful thing to you to make it so that you couldn't have children? So take note. This idea that that is rampant in the Christian church, unfortunately, and, and I don't know that it's ever taught anywhere, at least at Redemption we never teach it, but people still believe this idea that if I could just get right with God, if I could just prove my worthiness to God, if I could be righteous and blameless before God in my being and in my behavior, then I will no longer suffer. And that's not true in this world. And it's not a misunderstanding of righteousness but it's a misunderstanding of the inherent sinfulness in this world. It's a misunderstanding of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. It's the fact that your theology of sin does not go far enough and deep enough to understand that everything in this world is corrupt. Praise God for Jesus coming. And yet we're still living in that already but not yet. We are saved by God, but we're not yet there yet. And we're still fighting this battle constantly. And barrenness in their culture, which they suffered greatly from, is every bit as painful as it is in ours, and and some would argue even more so because of how their culture falsely related that condition to the unworthiness that God supposedly saw in the barren couple. And furthermore, in their culture, there were pragmatic problems with being barren in their culture. For instance, if you didn't have any children, you had no social security. There was no Social Security Administration in the first century. And so in their economy, the way things ran there, their children were supposed to take care of them when they grew advanced in years. So it's an economic and end-of-life disaster to not to be able to have children in their context. And furthermore, in their culture, a husband was allowed to divorce his wife for the simple reason that she couldn't have children, making making it even more difficult for women than it already was in their culture and in their context. It was a mess. And yet, Zechariah hung in there, and they were both righteous and blameless. And some scholars would argue that part of the reason that Zechariah was righteous was because he did hang in there with Elizabeth. He didn't divorce her, which would have been his right to. And the two of them refused to listen to the constant cultural call to turn their backs on God because they were in a hard situation. So now we look at Zechariah's story, his encounter. This is verses 8 through 17. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He is going to be megalopian. And and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So again, remember, 18,000 priests, 24 division, two weeks a year serving the temple, 750 of them there. To be picked by Lot to be able to light the incense was a great honor and it was rare. The vast majority of priests would go to their graves never having the honor of lighting the incense. And it was such a big deal that people would gather around each time a new priest would go in to light uh, the incense. And, and you could only do this once in a lifetime. Once you were picked to light the incense, you were put on a list that said you don't get to do it anymore. So this is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to do this. And because it is a big deal, like I said, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people waiting outside for Zechariah to come out. But something happens, and we'll see this later on, uh, to do the incense, to light the incense, usually just took a couple of minutes. You were in and out. And by the way, you really didn't want to get trapped that deep in the temple. Most priests would tell you that you wanted to be kind of in and out. To be in the presence of God like that was kind of a, a frightening thing. So it would only take a couple of minutes usually, but then there's this angelic confrontation, and he's in there for a while, and the people begin to murmur, and they're astonished, and they're concerned, and they're anticipating what's going to happen. Well, what happens inside is Gabriel appears. He's one of only two angels that's named in Scripture. The other is Michael. And, and, and we do know that these appearances of angels to human beings most often are moments of trouble and fear for those who experience them. When an angel appears to a human being, it's a moment of trouble and fear. Uh, and I know there's, there's people who say, man, I wish an angel would appear before me. I, you know, I, I got some questions. I, I, I have an agenda. You know, that would be a great opportunity if an angel would, would come and see me. Uh, maybe not. I think what, when that happens, you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is a little different than I expected. And I am a little bit nervous about this. Zechariah was troubled and afraid. Mary also was troubled and afraid when it happened to her. And remember, Zechariah is a man of God. He's seen a lot, but he saw Gabriel, and that undid it. So I think this is a normal response for them and for us. So this would be a key moment for us to recognize that we need Jesus because there's going to be a moment at some point in our lives when we realize we're not enough. Culture keeps telling us you are enough. But when we realize we aren't enough, that we've fallen short, we need Jesus. Sometimes it takes an angel. Sometimes it just takes an experience. Sometimes it takes the testimony of somebody else. But when we realize that we're not enough, we recognize our need for Jesus. Because we cannot stand before God with nothing but our complete lack of awesomeness. That will trouble and scare us. Jesus stands in for us. He takes our guilt and gives us 
his righteousness. That's the whole idea behind the gospel. That is the truth of the gospel. We need Jesus because he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then verses 13 through 17, the last part of that. In those five verses, Gabriel tells Zechariah a lot. He gives Zechariah a ton of information. For instance, he says, your prayers have been heard, Zechariah. Which prayers? Probably both for Elizabeth's barrenness and as you go into light the incense, you're also supposed to be praying on behalf of the people of Israel. And so he's probably praying for that as well. And then he, he tells Zechariah, hey, your wife's going to have a baby. That must have been news to him. And then he says, by the way, it's going to be a boy, and you're going to name him John. A couple things here. The word John means God is gracious. But secondly, and more importantly, in their cultural context, fathers always, without exception, named sons. If a son is born, the father was the one who named the son. So the fact that the angel tells Zechariah, we already have a name for him, should help us to understand the seriousness of this situation. John, his son, is going to be a big deal. He's going to be meganopian. He's going to be great before the Lord. Uh, uh, Gabriel also tells Zechariah that he needs to be part of the Nazarite vows of purity because his ministry is going to be that special, that John needs to be a Nazarite. In other words, he needs to grow his hair long, he needs to abstain from alcohol, and there's a bunch of other things as well. You can look that up. But he's in good company here because in the Old Testament, both Samson and Samuel took the Nazarite vows as well. Uh, Zechariah was told that John will be filled uh, with the Holy Spirit even at conception and Gabriel told Zechariah that John is going to be a powerful witness for God's people to God's people. Now that's a lot. You can imagine at the end of this that Zechariah is a tad overwhelmed. Especially as Zechariah is listening to that last part. That last part is actually taken directly from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's the last two verses that God's people hear from God for 400 years before Jesus is born. And here's what God says. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Zechariah is overwhelmed. Look how he responds in verses 18 through 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So in his trouble and his fear, Zechariah pushes back, probably much like we would. And Gabriel does two things. The first is to give Zechariah Gabriel's job description. He says, well, here's, here's why you can trust what I'm saying, because here's my job. He's got two things in his job description. Here it is. It's an awesome job description. He says, I stand in the presence of God, and then I get sent out to speak. I stand in the presence of God, and then I get sent out to speak. How many of you have that as your job description? Any, any hands? Okay, guess what? All of us do. All of us do. I know, you're in the marketplace, you're like, my job description's way longer and more difficult than that. Okay, I'm talking about as a follower of Christ, our job description is to stand before God, 
Hear the proclamation of the gospel. Study his word. Be in, in community with other believers. And then we are sent out to speak and to testify to the truth of the gospel. That's our job description. And, and if you're not sure about that, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul specifically says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And then the fact that Zechariah sounds a lot like Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 leads to Gabriel's second thing that he does. And let me remind us how much Zechariah sounds like Abraham first before I tell you that second thing. In, in Genesis chapter 15, it's a famous and important chapter of scripture, God tells Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham says, but I'm old and you haven't given me any children. My wife is barren. How am I to know this? So God shows him. And, and, and it's a wonderful story. You should go and read Genesis chapter 15 about how this whole thing kind of got started with Abraham as the father. Well, Zechariah essentially says the same thing that Abraham says. He says, I'm old and I have no kids. The idea that Elizabeth is advanced in years means she cannot physically have children at this point. And Gabriel shows him. That's the second thing he does. He says, you're not going to be able to speak until John is actually born. And Zechariah cannot speak. He comes out of the incense ceremony, and he can't speak. That, that, was, uh, that was Gabriel proving to Zechariah that this, these words were going to come true. And look what happens when he comes out, verses 21 through 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. A couple things happen here. First of all, the people are wondering why this is taking so long. That word wonder in verse 21 means they were astonished, concerned, and anticipating what was going to happen. And, and it's like nothing like this has ever happened before. The priests go in, light the incense, and they come out. What's going on with Zechariah? But Zechariah had an encounter. And that became clear to the people when he came out and he could not speak. And they all had to go home from that event with no answers. The best that Zechariah could do was just do a little, some hand signals, and then he left. And, and so they had no answers as to what actually happened. They could surmise. He saw a vision and all that. This has probably happened to you. It's happened to me. You've been somewhere, anywhere, your work, family, neighborhood, church. You hear something that's way out of the ordinary that's going on, and nobody has an explanation for it. You see and witness, maybe experience something completely out of the ordinary, and you're like, I wonder why that, and you, you want it. I mean, you're like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, you, you, you start building mountains in your, in, your, in your living room and throwing stuff into your, you, you, you have no resolution. You want an answer. That, it's like an itch that you can't scratch. You just want to know, and you leave with uncertainty, and it just feels wrong, and it bugs you. And that's what they had to do. And so in the next couple of weeks, here's what we're going to see. God's response to Zechariah's doubt and consternation was to keep him from being able to speak for months. Now, he's a priest. Imagine that. He's a pastor. He can't speak now for months. A lot of people probably prayed that that might happen to him. But anyway, he can't speak. God's response to Mary, we're going to find out, she also had doubt and consternation. And God's response to her was to assure her, to comfort her, and to let her know that she was highly favored. Understand that both responses, the response to comfort Mary and to tell her that she has favor, 
and the response to Zechariah to make it so that he couldn't speak for months. Both of those responses are born in God's love. God is not mad at Zechariah and compassionate for Mary. He loves them both. But each of their contexts, each of their personhoods, each of their needs demands a different type of discipline and guidance for each of them. I hope you understand that fairness is not treating everybody the same. That's not fairness. True fairness is born of understanding who a person is, what their needs are, why they have those needs, how they're wired, where they are at that particular time in their life, what they know, what they don't know, and then responding accordingly. The cry that I'm not treated the same as somebody else is not a cry of that's not fair. It may feel like it, but rather we should understand that maybe that's the way God has designed it because he's specifically looking to meet our needs where we are in that moment. Those who believe that they have God's love all figured out, and especially those who think that they could love better than God, you're just swimming in foolishness. God knows everything, so he knows exactly what our needs are. And then you look at these last two verses. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In other words, she was kind of happy that she wasn't the object of scorn in her community anymore. But why would Elizabeth keep herself hidden for five months then after she got pregnant? Well, there's two reasons, and it... And both of them really go to her considerable spiritual understanding of who God is and her need for humility. So first of all, the reason she did it is it's a sign to God of her humble gratitude. She was humbly grateful for what God was doing. It was an act of deep devotion to God to enter into the spiritual discipline of solitude at that time. And second of all, because childlessness carried such a reproach in their culture... She did not want to appear to be gloating when this was really more than just about her getting pregnant. She understood that this was more than just, hey, I'm pregnant now, I'm going to go and show off. I'm going to show everybody my baby bump. That's not what it's about. She knows that God is doing something really exciting here, and so she decided that she's not going to participate in any of the cultural drama and the cultural glory. That's not what was called for or appropriate at this time. All right, so what's the point? Here's the point. It is Advent. And as the church, during Advent, we should be all about telling people that Jesus lived sinlessly, he was God, he died for our sins, he was raised from the dead to give us new life, and that he's coming again. And that is a great honor, just like it is for John the Baptist. Understand, John the Baptist is not the only one who is Meganopian. Mary is not the only one who is Meganopian. Zechariah, not the only one who is Meganopian. All of us are great before the Lord. All of us are Meganopian. And that comes with a call on our lives as well to go out and to testify as to the gospel. But we also need to understand that there's going to be a cost of being the church and carrying this testimony to the world. John was great. He was Mega. But his ministry and testimony were also a considerable annoyance and adjutant to the world, to the culture, and specifically to people who did not like being called out for their injustice and their sin. And John had no problem doing that. And if you go to Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14, 
You can read about how John was not only ridiculed and imprisoned, but he was executed because he was a man of God bringing good news to the world. But that good news often upends people's cozy little lives of sin and injustice. Redemption Arcadia, we need to understand that Christianity is not just a sweet story. Christianity is the reality of righteousness overcoming evil and light defeating darkness. And this reality will not always be received with joy and gladness by people who love living in the darkness. But it is life for those who are being saved. Amen. So we're going to move into our time of reflection and response now. And if you have your communion kits, that's great. If you don't, it would be good if you would uh, go to the lobby and grab one for communion. It's good to get up and move around a little bit. Because Jesus was born, and it's not just that he was born so that we could have a holiday season have the running around and the food and the family and, and this year COVID restrictions. It's not just why Jesus was born. He was born because he had a purpose and a mission and that was to go to the cross for the atonement of our sins so that he could transfer his righteousness to us and he would take our guilt and our sin upon him. And then through the resurrection we have this eternal life and so Advent points both to the, to the birth and to the death and the resurrection. And because of the death and the resurrection, Jesus calls us to this table, to this supper, to this sacrament where we take the bread which represents his body, broken for our sin, and the cup, wine, juice, and we take that which is him pouring out his blood for the new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins. And we do that, we do that as a confession of sin. We do that uh, to proclaim that we embrace the gospel and we do that as a celebration that we are being saved and have been saved. So this is a special time that we get to do that right now. Let's do that. Remember the moment love 
Verse 12, God says that he watches over his word so that he can perform his word. And we saw that today in the life of Zechariah. We'll see it next week in the life of Mary. But receive this as your benediction for today. Uh, Now may Jesus, the word of God, cause his word to be performed in you, both today 